Welcome to Alessia's Divine Comedy, a journey through Dante's masterpiece, a read-along podcast hosted by me, Alessia Cesana Harris. This is episode two, Inferno, Canto Secondo, First Day, Sunset. Welcome back. It's a lovely sunny day here in South London, although it's a bit windy, and it's delightful to see here with a cup of tea watching the soft late afternoon sun going towards sunset, just as I discussed this canto which took place as night approached too. Far from being a sign of my enculturation though, a cup of tea in late afternoon is a habit I have learned from my late grandmother. The only difference between then and now is that I now use loose leaves and don't really need trinings, which was the best option you can find in Italy for a long time before they started to import Taylor's Savarogate too. I believe this was a sun tea from Waitress, which is now kept in a pre-lockdown tin of orange pecan from Fornum and Masons. I do miss that place, I wish we could already go back to strolling down Piccadilly with um, lovely tea and biscuits and yeah, well, let's stop daydreaming. Enough about me. If this is the first time you stumble upon this podcast, you should stop listening to it now and go back to episode one. The reason for it is that we are doing the read-along of a narrative poem and it wouldn't make sense to hear me talk about the context of the second chapter before you read the first. I also introduced the podcast and myself there, if you are curious about why I've embarked on such a project in the first place. Anyway, if this is the second time you're listening to us, I assume you know the drill. So, we left Dante following Virgil as the day started, and we find them still walking, until Dante begins to have doubts about the journey. He asks if the poet deems that his virtue is enough to sustain what feels to him like a war. Virgil's response to that can perhaps come across as a little mean, but maybe Dante at the time really deserved it. Anyway, this chapter is like a flashback within a flashback, uh, within a flashback, Virgil recounts that someone visited him in the limbo, which is the place where the virtuous pre-Christians, who are not damned, but also can't enter the beatific region, reside in the poem. But I'll say more on this subject when we get there. Also, I've used the beatific vision as a term before, and if you're not familiar with what I mean, that's literally heaven. It's like quite literally being in the presence of God. So anyway, this person was a woman sent by the Blessed Virgin Mary through a messenger Saint Lucy to help, quote-unquote, her friend Dante. Now, there are hypotheses about the identity of this woman, who is named Beatrice. The name means the one who makes someone blessed, so it would be an entirely allegorical choice. However, Dante had nurtured an unrequited love for a woman named Beatrice in real life, and so it could also be a fantasy encounter with the real woman. <coughs> Excuse me. Regardless, 
The flashback shows us a sort of parallel between Dante and St Paul the Apostle, which will become a little more evident as time goes on. Both unworthy vessels chosen by God's grace to announce something to the world for the salvation of souls. Was Dante truly given inspiration in the same obvious way as the Damascene conversion of the great saint? Perhaps. The fact that he wrote it in the popular language of Florence, and I mean popular in the sense of used by the people, and not in the sense of famous, is because he wanted the largest number of people to be moved to piety by the content of the poem. It may sound a bit arrogant to paint oneself as the prophet from for the ages, but we can't really judge his heart behind the statements which were made in his treaty De Vulgari Eloquencia, which translates as On the Eloquence of the Vernacular. Pious motives do not, however, make the poem just sanctimonious world vomits. And the sass and criticism that transpires in the county we'll see in the next few days give us some hints as to Dante's personality. If he was alive today, he'd likely be stuck in endless Twitter spats just like the rest of us. A little final note about the language. The comedy is one of the works in the vernacular that most defines what modern Italian looks like. In a similar way as Shakespeare's works and the King James Version of the Bible has shaped modern English, with a number of neologisms and sayings that people now take for granted as if they were part of the language from time immemorial, so it's the case for Dante. He used the Florentine dialect in its high and low forms, as well as Latinisms, Gallicisms and Neologisms. And to this day, we still quote bits and pieces and whole sentences as sayings, and no one is in doubt where they come from. This canto, which is effectively the first of the Inferno, is not as rich in allegory as the previous one, but it shows us a key of interpretation. In the final verses, Dante appears to be motivated by love of Beatrice, which is perhaps the final earthly attachment that he'll have to detach himself from to achieve the beatific vision. It is not, however, the only one. The Thomists among us will have noticed that verses 88-90 to 90 have a reference to an Aristotelian principle which Dante would have known mostly through St. Thomas Aquinas' interpretation. He quotes closely a passage from the third book of the Ethics, whose commentary is found in the Summa Theologiae, volume 21, on fear and anger. And it's about what kind of fear is virtuous compared to the pointless fears of Dante himself, which are driven by his fallen humanity in comparison to Beatrice's redeemed one. Virtuous fear is the fear of things that can harm us, and the prospect of hell for Dante should be one, not in terms of the pain he'll experience during his journey with Virgil, which is his concern in this canto, but as the pain he'd experience if he turned away from it and let the three beasts stop him from reaching the summit. It's like, yeah, it's right to be fearful of hell, just for the wrong reason. Most of the chapter dealt with the idea of fear and we see both Dante the narrator and Virgil's opinion of Dante's thoughts. In seven seconds thoughts, although it was in fact the first recorded instance of Dante's thinking, 
The implication, which is mostly given to us through Virgil's reaction, but it's not like the narrator is coming to kind of like Dante's rescue and sort of making us be a bit more sympathetic toward him, is that Dante is trying to rationalise his fears in order to justify backing out of what he had first embraced. <coughs> Excuse me. It's significant that Dante accepted the offer of journey into the afterlife during daytime, but began to feel doubts as night approached. When we look at things in the light, which is an image of Christ, our fears are dispelled, and we have clarity that we don't possess when we are surrounded by darkness and shadows and the perception of the unknown evil. Despite the parallel with St Paul, Dante now reminds me a lot more of St Peter walking on water and nearly drowning when he paid attention to the storm around him instead of the Lord. That's all for today and we'll be back tomorrow with the first step into the afterlife. Ooh, exciting! Thank you for listening to today's episode of Alessia's Divine Comedy. A journey through Dante's masterpiece. Thank you also to Alexander Nakarada for the music, which is Panfer 10 or Ets if it was not meant as a Roman numeral, and is available in the public domain. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Alessia underscore Sheik or on my blog www.sheikandcatholic.com.